Uh, our uh, friend Judge Haas is going to lead us in prayer this morning. So, right Let's over here. Let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day, for the opportunity to freely get together, to listen to the inspired word of Dr. Guy. Be with us. Open our hearts and minds to your word. We ask this in thy name. Amen. Amen. Okay, my good friends, uh, as classic educational uh, protocol suggests, you should always tell people what they're going to study first, and then tell them, and then what's the last part? Tell them what you told them, yes. Okay, so here's uh, what we're going to do this morning, intro. Uh, we want to talk about theology proper, uh, and that is specifically some things about God, just as God. And the focus today is God as spirit. Um, we're actually uh, on chapter three of Beyond Beliefs, and it's titled Returning to God as Spirit. But we want to focus on God as spirit and what that means. So uh, I want to introduce you to a couple new words. Uh, pneuma, can you see where we get that in English? Pneumatic. Pneumonia. Pneumonia is an affliction of the airbags, right? Um, pneumatic tools, air-driven tools. So every time in the New Testament when spirit is mentioned, uh, it always uses the Greek word pneuma. And you're going to see just in a minute how that re relates to God. Uh, I'm also going to introduce you to a couple of classical, uh, I guess you could call them ancient theologians, Anselm, and Aquinas, who has heard of Anselm? All right, very good. And Aquinas, probably most of you have. Uh, Aquinas is regarded as the teacher in the Catholic Church, and I don't mean that uh, negatively. I mean, he's, that's how esteemed he is. He's regarded as the authoritative teacher of the Catholic Church. And I want to show you what he said uh, about God, and of course, Anselm's famous definition of God. Then, part two. We have a very ambitious class today. <laughs> Think we'll get past the first board? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I want to show you three things about specifically the Holy Spirit that the New Testament focuses on. Um, the role of the Holy Spirit in persuasion. I think a very much neglected understanding of how the Holy Spirit works uh, in our lives. Then, of course, the more traditionally known notion of the Holy Spirit imparting power or actually being power inside of us. And then we want to conclude with some present time, uh, current understandings of what we can do in the 21st century to understand God as spirit and also uh, the Holy Spirit's role in the lives of the Christian. Okay, so... Does anybody have any comments this morning or questions or even smart remarks? Dr. Smith is here, so. <laughs> I know, I'm just teasing you. Right. Anybody? Questions? Anything? I'm, I hope you always realize that, uh, as I told you last week, I don't use PowerPoint anymore because I want you to interact, I want you to talk, I want you to feel free. And... My young man, where's that mic? Oh, Judge Haas has the mic. You want to run for me today? Yeah, you can do it. Okay, great. And you're smart enough that you can run and look up Bible passages and keep, and not be weary. That's right. 
Okay, let's start out with John 4.24, please. If you would look that passage up. Uh, this is Jesus speaking. Uh, many of the passages that we're going to look at this morning are directly from Jesus. And uh, this is Jesus' famous conversation with the woman at the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman at the well. And, of course, they got into this long conversation uh, led by Jesus. And it got down eventually to her being a Samaritan and having the Sumerian form of worship versus the Jewish form of worship in Jerusalem. Uh, I guess the closest analogy we could have in today's culture would be a Presbyterian and a Baptist having a conversation about differing conceptions of God. Uh, this is really kind of a denominational chat that he has with her. And the big idea that Jesus drops on her is, and who's reading? John 4.24. You'll read it. Thanks. Come on. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Okay, the master says to her, God is what? Spirit. Spirit. Okay, now what does this mean? Let's try to unpack it. Uh, contrary to popular opinion, that means first and foremost, God does not have a body. Okay? God does not have a body. We've all seen the famous uh, Michelangelo Sistine Chapel with the hand of God reaching out and the hand of Adam reaching up. And uh, God looks like God has spent a lot of time at a local gym because his arm is ripped. Um, okay, in a, in a previous age, I guess with people not reading, these kinds of images were fine. It was a way to communicate to people the creation of God, uh, of Adam. Uh, but the fact is, God does not have a body. Uh, God is, number one, eternal. No beginning and no end. And then there's the famous theological attributes that are described uh, of God, the omnis. God is what? Omniscient, which means that God knows all things. God doesn't learn. God doesn't employ judicial linear logic like judges do. God doesn't employ investigative reasoning and hypotheses like doctors do. Uh, God just knows all things simultaneously, past, present, and future. What's the next omni? Omnipresent. Now that one's the most pertinent to the notion of God not having a body. Omnipresent means God's present everywhere simultaneously at the same time, right? How can you do that if you have a body? Now, I don't know, sometimes you guys may have heard Christians talking about uh, being in a worship service and they'll say things like, you could just feel God there, or God showed up, or the presence of God came, or sometimes God came. Now, does, 
Did that mean that God wasn't there and then came and we experienced God? What's it mean then when we say we felt the presence of God? Yes! It's within the human. The human apprehends God's presence that always was there, which is a lot different than saying God came. And by the way, technically, philosophically, this is known as phenomenological language when you speak this way. And humans can't do anything other than speak phenomenologically. We speak from our experience. So we experience God, and we say, ah, wow, God was here. Now, God was always there, but you just suddenly apprehended God. What's the third omni? Omnipotence. God is all-powerful, which a lot of uh, intellectuals have made uh, a lot of uh, uh, accusations or critiques about God by devising these little supposed conundrums like, well, if God's all-powerful, can God make a rock that God cannot lift? Now, what's the, what's the problem here? If God's all-powerful, can God make a rock that God can't lift? This is supposed to involve the, uh, uh, the Christian belief of God's omnipotence and some sort of contradiction. Can God make a rock that God can't lift? Uh, if God wanted to, yes. But if God made a rock that God couldn't lift, if he couldn't lift it, that would mean God isn't omnipotent. And if he can't make a rock that he can't lift, then that means he's not, all, he's not omnipotent. Okay, so we've got to qualify this. When, when theologians talk about God being omnipotent, they don't mean that God can do nonsense. What they mean is that God's power is applicable in any way that the rationality of God still is retained. So God can't lie. The Bible tells us this. So God can't do some things that are contrary to God's nature, but that doesn't reduce God's omnipotence. Now think about this. God is an eternal, unbounded, omnipotent, omniscient, absolutely beyond anything that we can actually conceive of, spirit. So if God doesn't have a body, then what are some other uh, conclusions that we can draw from this? God doesn't have flesh. God doesn't have a body. So therefore what? Ah, yes, God has no gender. Well, that solves a big problem, especially for women. Every image that's ever been painted of God down through the ages always shows God as a male. And then in about the 1960s, early 70s, a whole uh, movement got started among some theologians. And they said, well, let's start referring to God as she, and we'll balance things out. The whole goddess worship. So now we got God pictured as female. Does that solve the problem? No, it just entraps us in another uh, limitation. God is beyond gender. So that solves the war of the sexes right there, right? Number two, if God doesn't have a body, oh, thank you. There's no race attributed to God. Uh, I have had, when I taught at Malone, I had, have had many Malone students tell me that God was a white boy sitting on a chair somewhere in heaven. So once you get rid of this notion that God has uh, ethnicity because God doesn't have skin, 
He now solved what other problem? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, our notions of beauty, what we think is beautiful, but what's one of the major problems of the human race? Yeah, color barriers, racism, ethnicity problems. Now we find out that God is beyond that. God doesn't have skin color. All right, so these are all really practical applications or understandings that flow out of the notion of who God really is. God is an unbounded spirit with no gender, no ethnicity, uh, beyond our abilities to actually conceive of other than certain things that we can understand about God. Now, um, what's one of the Ten Commandments that's really pertinent to this topic? Uh, yes. Don't make any images of me. And God puts this out over and over and over again. I don't want you to try to replicate what you think I look like. Don't make any images. And you, you read the Bible and you say, well, what, why, why? What's the big deal? What's wrong with that? We make images of everything. Why can't we make an image of God? And the answer is what? There is no image of God that you can make that accurately depicts who God is. And every time you do make an image of God, you find yourself involved in what philosophers call reductionism. You, you are reducing God down to some cartoon version of what you think God is, and every time you reduce God down, then you involve people's minds in a misconception of God. It is really a misleading type of enterprise to do. So it's kind of humorous when Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the Greek, uh, Syrian Greek general, warrior, king, who invaded Jerusalem in the 300s, uh, he wanted uh, to go into the temple in Jerusalem because he wanted to see the God that he had just conquered. So when he went into the temple and went into the Holy of Holies, he found what? A box. No, actually the box was gone by then. He found what? Nothing. He was very disappointed because he was like, well, where's the God I just conquered? And the answer was? Still here, you just don't get it because every other religion, that's, that's fine, you can close it. I know I'm being loud, yeah. No, that's fine. Every other religion in the history of the world has always tried to depict what their God looks like except the Jews who understood if you cannot reduce God into any form of a graven, cut, painted image, and every time you do, you, you wind up misleading people. So God's solution to the whole thing is what? Book of Genesis, God does something. You want to get sort of like a vision of what God is? What does God do? Genesis chapter 1, God did something. So that, yes, now when you said, what, 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 what? Yes, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. It says, so God said, let us make and actually, you've got to understand the Hebrew there, too. He doesn't say, man, let, let's make Adam in our image. Adam becomes 
Adam's name, but Adam in Hebrew actually means what? Humanity. So let's translate it correctly so we can get rid of the, the uh, gender thing. God says, let us make humanity in our image. And so God made humanity in God's image. Male and female, God made them. So now you get this picture that you need both male and female together to get a uh, what? Uh, something like what God is. So when you look at Judge Haas and Sue Ellen together, interacting together, you get a vision something like what God is like, male and female. You need both. So, what are you and what am I? What are we supposed to be? Yeah, we're images. We are the image of God. We're made in the image of God. But that doesn't, as many people have misleadingly interpreted this to be, it doesn't mean our bodies. If it doesn't mean our bodies, then what does it mean to be an image bearer? What is the image? Uh, your presence, your spirit. God's attributes get shown through a carbon-based biological creature. It's not the, it's not our biology. It's not our bodies that reflect the image. It's the attributes that human beings have as a result of being created by God, like what? What would be some of the attributes of God that we sort of reflect, that we, yes, sir? Well, we could go to the Westminster Confession. Yes, we could. <laughs> we'll throw one out, goodness. Okay, goodness. The, the notion of being good gets reflected in humans, yes. Uh, the fact that we are sub-creators. Um, by the way, uh, next version of uh, The Hobbit's coming out on December 13th, J.R.R. Tolkien's great book, and he and C.S. Lewis were really into this notion, and they viewed themselves as sub-creators. They viewed that as being part of what it meant to be made in God's image, that humans could, could create things, but they can't create things exactly how God creates them, what we can do is take the stuff that God has made and using our creativity, we can make sub or secondary creations. No one, no human can make stuff out of nothing. Give me a couple more. What, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Uh, that we have the capacity sh to show mercy. Wisdom. We, have the, we have intellectual um, cognitive abilities that far exceed animals. We have the ability to think to reason, to show wisdom. Yes. To have um, relationships, but talk a little bit more as a psychologist on that level, because I have a relationship with my dog. <laughs> it is. Uh, but I see my dog, the other dog that I have now, they have a relationship too. Um, so, talk from a psycholo psychological point of view. When humans relate, what's different? Well, I think the fact that we share that male and female is 
ultimately a relationship issue. Yes. And that that's what is the essence of the, uh, uh, the way God has created us. Yeah. And it's not primarily instinctual. It does involve some instincts, right? Male and female, humans have instincts, but humans can transcend just the mere instinctual and can rise above that and have a relationship that's built on what? Mutual respect, which my dogs don't show for one another. Um, <coughs> love, like true love. The other day when the big one got the little one down and had its mouth wrapped around its throat. Uh, of course, maybe some of you that are married do this too. I don't know. <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, love, understanding. Um, willful, volitional choices that you can engage with another human being with intellect and love and all these things built into it. It's, we're, we're uni we are unique in that way. So, the only image that God permits is what image? Us. At least on this earth. Now, we don't know what's going on in the rest of the universe. So now we get this understanding that God is, uh, has these attributes that are, I guess to use modern language, mind-blowing. But if we uh, look at one of the great Jewish theologians, uh, Otto, he said that uh, the way that you know that you're having an authentic God experience is the ex what he called the experience of the numinous. Now, who thinks they know what that word is? The numinous. Um, it involves, it, it certainly is not a tangible thing. So in that sense, yes, it's breath-like. Numinous. Anyone know that word? It is an experience that is beyond rationality when you enter into or understand or apprehend who God really is and you understand that you're in the presence of something that is so far beyond human that it's sort of awe-inspiring. Almost a little bit unnerving. Breathtaking. Breathtaking. I don't want to say scary because then that makes people be afraid of God and God doesn't want us to be afraid of God. But when you really start apprehending what it means to be engaged with an in eternal, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing spirit that is so far beyond human conception that we can't even conceive of fully, when you really start apprehending that, it's a little bit of a numinous, awe-inspiring. And of course, awesome is a word that has been over the last 20 years used to the point where we've lost. Uh, yes, uh, tell me something that's really awesome. Your dog, yes. <laughs> okay, dogs are awesome, and the Bible's awesome. That's the Grand Canyon. But I mean, young people use awesome all the time, right? I mean, it's your, one of your favorite words. OSU is awesome. Um, donuts are awesome. <laughs> um, but awe 
awe, awe, in its classical meaning, means what? To have a sense of awe. It's when you realize something is beyond you and you can't really get your mind around it and it's a combination of uh, wonder starting to slide to this is too much, this is beyond my ability, and then a tiny bit of um, fear. Not afraid, but wow. Awesome. Yes, Sue? Awful. Yes. Something is full with awe. Now, unfortunately, it degenerated to, to mean something that's terrible. But something that was awful was starting to try to move that word to the place of scary or weird or beyond. Okay, so God is spirit. And it's very important for us to understand this. Now, here's point two God is beyond words. I'm pretty sure that I've taught this before, specifically about Aquinas here, but I'm just going to review it really quick. Anselm was a theologian that lived about a thousand years ago. And when he was pressed to the wall and tried to understand, uh, explain what God was, this is his definition. God is that which no greater can be conceived. That was his definition of God. God is that which no greater can be conceived. So whatever you can conceive, God is greater than your human conceptions. Now, a lot of people, he tried to use this as an argument to prove that God exists, and I'm not doing that. I still think it's a pretty good definition. God is that which nothing greater can be conceived beyond human conception. Now, Aquinas came along 200 years later, and he said, we got a problem as human beings when we try to use words to talk about God, and here's why. We can speak, we can, three ways that any human can speak about anything. One is called univocal. Notice the one. One, word, one. So univocal language is when you use one word and there is a direct one-to-one correlation between the word that you use and the object that you're referring to. So this is, anybody have any disputes about this? We all understand this. Water represents, the word represents clearly the substance. So he said, the reason that you can't speak about God univocally is why? You can't do it. Um, Getting warm. Uh, Yeah, there's no human vocabulary that absolutely captures what God is really like. So even though when we say things like God is pneuma, God is love, God is light, what we have to do as human beings is take something from this dimension, light, or our experience of love, and then impose it upon God, and Aquinas said what? When you do that, you're subjugating or making God be underneath your human experience of what light or love or any of these attributes are. So he said, you can't really do that, even though that's the human condition. We try. 
And then he said another way that we speak about anything, but then also as God, is equivocal. Now, we have some uh, legal people here today. Can you kindly tell me uh, what equivocation is? What's that? <laughs> uh, maybe or maybe not, but when we... What? Um, yeah, sort of. But when somebody in a court of law engages in what a judge says, you know, that's equivocation. What do they really mean? Yeah, there's an ambiguity in your language. Um, and uh, probably the classic uh, modern-day illustration of this would be President Bill Clinton. Well, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. <laughs> He's a lawyer. He knows how to equivocate. We all use equivocation. You say something, and it's sort of true, but it's not really true in the total sense of the word. Equivocation. Well, Aquinas said, you never want to talk about God in an equivocal manner. Why not? Yeah, because God is reality. God's true, and you never want to mislead people in your statements about God. So here's the human problem of the human condition. You can't speak about God in a one-to-one, -one, and you ought not to use equivocal language when you speak about God. So what does that leave us? What, what, what? No vocal. <laughs> I can see how you got there. Okay, well, let's go over here and use this. What's analogical language? And somebody give me an analogy. Well, first of all, let's tell, tell me what an analogy is, and then we'll, we'll get some illustrations. What's an analogy? It's a comparison. So uh, it's when you compare one thing to another, but you, you're not doing it when you make the comparison. You're not trying to make a univocal statement. You're saying, ah, this thing is kind of like this thing. They, they have some corresponding qualities about them, but don't take it literally. Don't take it all the way to the breaking point. So like a good analogy would be what? I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. Look, really? Yes. Uh, give me another analogy. Thank you. And Jesus was a master analogist. What we call parables are really Analogies. They're little stories that suggest what God is like or suggest what the kingdom of God is like. Give me one more, a good analogy. It doesn't have to be about God. You guys take a lot of drugs last night? <laughs> An analogy. This is like this. <laughs> There's the man at KSU studying poetry. So poetry is nothing but, really, analogies. Okay, so Aquinas said, look, when we speak about God, the only way you can really do it is analogically, and you are to grow up and understand that when we use an analogy about God, we're not speaking univocally. Don't take it literally. 
And this solves a lot of problems because then you understand, well, we're merely suggesting what God is like with human words. But if we ever get to the place where we say, this word absolutely is representative of God, then now you've done what? Who can see what we've done? We've diminished God, and we've also engaged in something that the ancients did that the Bible over and over and over says never do, idolatry. We have now made a verbal idol or a verbal icon. Did you realize that? Did you ever think about that? That we engage in verbal idolatry? When we say God is absolutely this way and we use human words to describe God, if we're not careful, if we don't communicate carefully, if we don't tell people, this is an analogy, we can border on making an idol out of our words. Now think about the problems over the last 2,000 years in the Christian church. What has been the core problem? All the language, all the words that we use to lay out what God is like. Hey, it is a fun exercise. Go home today, Google um, the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed. Athanasian Creed. We never read it in church today. We only read the Nicene Creed because why? Short. I went to a Lutheran church one time in Florida and they actually read the entire Athanasian Creed. I loved it, but it took about 15 minutes. It's, it's a long thing. John Oliver, right? Athanasian Creed, oh, long. They go over and over and specifically using words to, 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 to define what God is like. Athanasius and other theologians wrote it. But the problem is when you take it univocally, you're still creating an idol, an idol made out of words. You're limiting God. So when we talk about God as spirit, we have to be real careful that we don't read into the term spirit what we think human uh, terminology means. Now, who would like to ask any questions about this so far? This is just theological entry stuff so that we can really understand what the rest of the New Testament says. Yes, sir. Dr. Smith. Oh, I, I thought I saw a quizzical look on your face. Is this, is this easy to understand? This? Is it shocking to you? It debunks a lot of Sunday school lessons. It debunks a bunch of uh, theological stuff that we start off in, in with the flannel graphs in kindergarten. And eventually, as we grow up, all those things have to be laid aside if we really want to enter into the experience of God as the Bible says we can. Yes? To reach this point, through the centuries, since people could build monuments and churches, they were trying to reach a God that was there all the time by getting higher and higher, building greater and greater monuments to impress him. And they didn't need to do that at all. Uh, what a great comment. Uh, King Solomon, 
1,000 years before Christ, 3,000 years ago. At the dedication of the temple, Solomon is illuminated to pray to God and says, we, we actually know that you don't live in a temple. We actually understand that you are beyond this little temple that we've built. We understand that no temple can confine you, can hold you. Uh, Solomon apparently understood, to some degree, that a temple that they built, the beautiful temple, was merely illustrative. However, the rest of the human race, or most of the rest of the human race, unfortunately, what happened with the church buildings? Kind of turned them into idols. Now, for example, no deprecation to this church. I, I personally think this church building is one of the most beautiful that I've ever seen. It kind of looks like it fell out of heaven and went through England on the way. <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful building. Uh, how, how many of you have ever gone to the National Cathedral? That place is crazy. I don't think there's one square inch in that entire building that isn't perfect. I mean, even the bottom floors on the bottom, you know, the, everything's polished and beautiful and fitted and just... So, the thing is, though, what? God's not confined there. It's, it's merely illustrative. Thank you. If you understand it correctly, it can be an aid. If you don't, it can become a hindrance. Just for the point, for the technical point. How many of you, when you were a kid, were told by your parents, don't run in God's house? Did your parents ever tell you that? <laughs> or don't wear your hat in God's house. Now, technically speaking, if you really literally meant that, don't run in God's house, that would be consigning to the, the human race to what? Never. Never running. Because wherever you run, you're in God's house, you're in God's presence. But isn't it true that when you come into this building, doesn't our behavior and our language change? Like when you guys go to the mall, are you like, the people out there in the front when they greet people, do you, are you all f bright and sprightly and cheery and neat? When you go to Walmart, are you like, hi, how are you? Especially John. <laughs> yes, John. John, uh, <clears throat> may I accuse you of being an un-American <laughs> radical? Well, you can One of the gentlest, it's probably true, but kindest I'm women I've ever known is a nun who spent 40 years living with the poor in Africa. She crossed a line and painted a peace sign on a nuclear weapon. She is in jail for the rest of her life. She committed the unpardonable crime. She is a terrorist because she painted a peace sign on a nuclear weapon. The unforgivable sin is a crime against property. Okay, well, now that you bring up property, then let's come back to this concept here, property. 
Let me ask you a question. Is God here in this building in any way, shape, or fashion more than God is at the worst place in downtown Canton? All right, now let's, let's talk. Yes, now you shifted. What I want to know is, in objective reality, is God more present here than in the worst place in Canton? No. So when you say, for some people, now you shifted it into our psychology, our experience. So, back to your point. If you can walk into a beautiful church building and you understand going in there, hey, this is an analogy, it's illustrative, it's supposed to help me understand something of the grandeur of God, I can ride on it sort of like a medium and help me understand how beautiful God is, wonderful. If you go in there and you say, ah, I am now in the presence of God, what happened to you? You trivialized, trivialized or reduced God, and you're actually engaging in a theological misunderstanding because God is no more present in this building than God is in the worst slums, the worst jail, the most terrible place in all of the world. God is everywhere present. So we have to be very careful about this. Okay, now. Jesus, John 16, 7 through 11. We want to focus now on the rest of the class, the Holy Spirit. And we want to understand how does, what does it mean to return to God as spirit? Which is actually the title of the chapter. Returning to God as spirit. So when we get to John 16, 7 through 11, I'm going to read this morning, just this is a longer one, so. with me? Verse 7. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, the paraclete, which is Jesus' word for the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But when I go, I will send him to you. Now this is what I want you to focus. When he comes, there's three things that Jesus says he will do. See if you can pick them out. There's three things that he says the Holy Spirit will do in the New Testament era. He will convict. I use persuasion. It is a legal term, but persuasion sounds a little sweeter than convict, right? I'm trying to communicate. It's a legitimate way to translate it. He will persuade people of what? Uh, number one, of sin. Uh, number two, righteousness. And number three, judgment. Then the master teacher goes on to break it down. And he explains. He just tells them sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he unpacks it. Of sin, because why? Because they don't believe in Jesus. Well, the thing is, once you believe in Jesus then the Holy Spirit doesn't have to persuade you of sin anymore. The only reason the Holy Spirit has to persuade us of our sins is to do what? To drive us to Jesus. Once that's done, he doesn't spend his time uh, pounding us on how we've fallen short of God. It's done. You understand. I understand. Yes, I've sinned. Of righteousness, the Holy Spirit persuades people. What does the Master say this means? 
It's kind of tricky language, but I'll, I'll try to help. Because... Yeah, well, if it's in my book, it's got to be true, so. Thank you. <laughs> Committing sin on Sunday morning, right. Of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. If we can't see Jesus in the flesh any longer, we don't see a visual demonstration of the full image of God as God intended humans to be. Therefore, we can't see what true righteousness is. So now that Jesus is not here in the body, the Holy Spirit does what for the human? Creates within them an understanding of what true righteousness is. Why does the Holy Spirit do that? So that we have a hunger for this. See the contrast? You get shown by the Holy Spirit that you are a sinner, I'm a sinner, in need of God's grace. Then the Holy Spirit shows you inside of yourself the true righteousness that only Jesus has. Why? So that you will hunger for this. So that you will embrace the righteousness of Jesus. So that you will allow the righteous one to fill you with his righteousness. Yes? determined I have never been able to remember for five minutes the difference between uh, consciousness and my conscience I mean that's not what I meant. they when you you know at very young you know that's wrong and mm-hmm. where did that come from uh, it didn't come because I heard so many Sunday school classes I used to have to fight my mother to go you know it's there's there's something there the Holy Spirit let is me that show what that you a, is that, that tells me, no, that's not right. Don't do that. It's a brilliant question. Look over at Romans 9, 1. And here's the classic text in the New Testament that shows the distinction between conscience, human conscience, and the Holy Spirit. And what does Paul say there? I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience... Notice he says, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. So he makes a distinction between human conscience and what? The Holy Spirit. Human conscience is part of what it means to be built in God's image. God installed within us this understanding that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. That's part of being human. And uh, even, I, I don't mean to sound superior here when I say even, but not yet Christians, people that are not Christians, have a sense of conscience. You don't have to be a Christian to have a conscience. All humans have some degree of conscience. Even when, like yesterday, I watched this show on um, Confessions of a Mobster. And uh, this guy was in the organized crime uh, family, and uh, he said... Uh, he's describing what it's like to be inside and he says, if you don't keep the rules, X, Y, Z is going to happen. So even in a society, in a group, a cohort of what appears to be complete lawlessness, what's true? There's rules. There's certain things that are deemed right and there's certain things that are deemed wrong and if you're a mobster in that uh, cohort, uh, you better w- right well understand the, the, the rules of right and wrong because if you don't, 
as they did to this guy, unbelievably, they shot him three times in the head. One bullet went through, one bullet lodged in the back of his head, they had to dig it out, uh, and they shot him two times in the chest, and the dude lived. <laughs> so then he was describing, you know, afterwards, after he got out, what it was like to be in this group. So, Dr. Smith, all people have conscience, but then when, when a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes in, and I would say gives you an upgrade. It's like, this is the, the hard, uh, hardware of the human experience, even though sometimes it's kind of sloppy in its function. The Holy Spirit comes in and upgrades that software, uh, puts new software in, upgrades the hard drive, and enables you to have a, a more acute and accurate sense of what God's understanding and righteousness really is. That's helpful. Now, can you tell me, are there differences in the level of, conscien uh, of conscience in different people? Let's say I'm four and this one is six and so forth. Is there a, different, a oh, difference in one man. kid to another? Please read all of you carefully Romans 14 repeatedly. Romans 14 goes into this in great depth. Humans have differing degrees of conscience. Some humans have what Paul calls a weak conscience. And what that means, actually, is that you need a lot of rules to understand God and live by God. You, you like a lot of structure and rules. What Paul calls a strong conscience is somebody that doesn't need all the rules and regulations. They can just relate to God, and they understand God doesn't care about a lot of stuff that some humans care about. I, I, mean, I mean, just take one that's controversial, everyone argues about it all the time. I mean, most Presbyterians uh, are beyond this. Alcohol. Does God care if you have a glass of wine with dinner? Barb said immediately, no. <laughs> But some humans think what? This is a big deal. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to defile it with alcohol. And so for them, it's, it's a matter of conscience. Other human beings can do what? Drink alcohol and they understand, eh, there's no problem with God. God doesn't care. Um, yes, and it goes on over and over and over again. Is it a sin to watch football? <laughs> um, yeah, I bet a lot. Of, yeah, well, boy, I'm not going to, I'll leave that alone. <clears throat> There's so many things that are what are called gray areas. They're not specifically uh, enumerated in Scripture as being right or wrong. And God says in Romans 14 over and over and over again, come, or as the Catholics say, form a correct conscience. Come to your own conclusions on this. Live with your own conscience. Don't impose your own conscience on others. It's very clear, yeah. There surely must be at least 10 that say something about do in moderation if you do at all. Moderation would be the fact that I can have a glass of wine. I won't be able to reason after that because I have no tolerance for it. But it's not sinful to me because I have no desire to drink the entire bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. 
and you could put me in a gambling house and I would just look around and say it was too hot and people were smoking here. So moderation, are there verses that address that? Sure, um, in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul talks about this as well, and he says, uh, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. In other words, not all things benefit all people equally. So for some people, he, Paul tells Timothy, drink wine instead of water for your stomach. You remember that passage? He blatantly tells him, and by the way, that's not grape juice. Welch's doesn't do it. You need the alcohol. But then he also writes in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk. So, yes, the golden mean. What's, what's beneficial for one person is not beneficial for another person. And so, good point. Yes, John. The word Christian uh, more and more bothers me personally. Um, for example, I no longer tell anyone I'm a Christian because you've been around me long enough. Am I perfect, John? Do I never say Well, nigh close to it, John. <laughs> well, I have you fooled then. Okay. If I claim to be a Christian, I'm claiming to be like Christ. And you will see me and see John. No, that's, that's a misunderstanding that some people have, that when you say, I'm a Christian, that some people think, well, then that means you're claiming to be like Jesus. That's not really what it means to claim to be a Christian in the New Testament. When the early Christians said, when they actually got a nickname, Acts 14 describes this, it was a derogatory nickname. They said about these people, ah, Christianos. What they meant by that is these are people that claim to follow the Messiah. Now notice the difference. Claim to follow is a lot different than okay. claim okay. to be exactly like. Okay. So that's really a misunderstanding that some people have about what it means when we say we're Christians. Okay, as long as that's clear, yeah. great. Well, all we have to do to make that clear is hang around with not yet Christians <laughs> and let them see what we're really like. Yeah. They'll find out right well that we're not perfect. And then the response to the not yet Christian who says, well, I thought you guys were uh, supposed to be just like Jesus. What you're supposed to say is what? Oh, no. I was persuaded by the Holy Spirit that I need Jesus and that I need his righteousness and that if I don't fly to Jesus, then I'm going to be judged for my sin. That's all that I am. I'm not saying that I'm better than you. We, we Christians have to make that abundantly clear. Now, notice this. I really is very, very important. This work of the Holy Spirit, when does it go on and to whom does it go on? with. When does it go on? When does the Holy Spirit persuade people of their sin, of their need for righteousness, and of the judgment that's going to come if they don't come to Christ? When does it go on, and with whom does it go on? It goes on continually, all the time. Every person, when you go to Walmart today, 
wherever you go today, that is a public assembly, you look at these people, and <coughs> you are to understand from God's point of view that God is working with them. Even if, if in your eyes, maybe, maybe you'll find yourself in a gambling den today. <laughs> maybe it'll be hot with smoking and alcohol. You're going to go to work at a library. <laughs> well, a den of iniquity, yes. They'll have all these rotten books in there. Well, when all these people go pouring into the library today, because it's a rainy day, you have to understand, you know what? God is working with, in, on, each one of them, persuading them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, now, once you understand that as a believer it relieves you and I of something very important. Like what? We don't need to judge them. We also don't need to do what? We don't need to persuade them of sin. We also don't need to persuade them that we're more righteous than them. But do you see how liberating this would be if we would actually trust God, the Holy Spirit, to do what the Holy Spirit says that the Holy Spirit is always doing, it would liberate us. We could just look at somebody that's not a Christian yet and say what? God's got this under control. God's working. God's persuading. All I have to do is what? Let Jesus be who Jesus is inside of me. And when God is done with that person, they will come to Christ. Yes. let us off the hook in terms of, um, you know, Jesus said, go and make disciples out of all nations and well, all that sort of you, stuff. Well, thank so you, thank you for bringing that up. And I'm someone who's not inclined to witness, like I'm not inclined to hand out tracts or whatever, yeah. I look at that, what you just said, and go, oh, good, I don't have to do anything. All right, well, that's not, and I wish we had more time, but class is really um, one minute over anyways. But next week, what I'll show you, we'll pick up right there. Once you understand the Holy Spirit is doing this, then you can switch your focus and attention over to the other thing that the Holy Spirit does for the Christian. This is for not yet Christians. But what does the Holy Spirit give to the Christian? And I'll leave this with you and then we'll pick it up next week. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes into you and you will be witnesses of me so the way it works is the Holy Spirit fills the Christian with power so that they can witness to the not yet Christian who's undergoing this persuasion. It works in tandem. Now that, notice when he says witnesses of me. He didn't say you're going to give three-point sermons to everybody that you meet or pin them up against the wall or stuff a track down their throat or any of the other things that we don't want to do. The witness could be, as Dr. Smith said, from being an example to when this person starts, you get to know them, they may ask you a question, you get to share with them Christ. That's how it's supposed to work. And working together, the Holy Spirit brings people to Jesus. Okay, I'm sorry we ran over. Uh, yes? Athanasian Creed? Because, as far as I'm concerned, anytime you go on beyond a paragraph, people are not going to pay attention anyway. So why do that? Well, I, I kind of agree in the sense that you, 
Yes, good point. <laughs>